Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. The Podcast Playground. I'm Buzz Knight, the host of Taking a Walk, Music History on Foot. Find us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the Podcast Playground, or wherever you get your podcast. Today, our guest is Joel Selvin, a legendary San Francisco-based music critic and author. Known for his weekly column in the San Francisco Chronicle, he's written multiple books covering everything from Altamont to Sly and the Family Stone to Sammy Hagar, and he has always been in the middle of music history. We'll talk to Joel Selvin next on Taking a Walk. So, Joel Selvin, when did you find your voice as a writer? That's presuming I have. (laughs) I don't know, Buzz. I mean, you know, voice is like, that's kind of the highest aspiration of writing, And, and sometimes... I, I, I find that I've found a voice and then I lose it. <laughs> I, uh, I started writing early on in life. You know, that was just something that I, I resonated with even at school, which I was a terrible student and eventually dropped out of high school. And then I went to work in the newspaper business and, and, and they don't really like stand on much ceremony about writing in the newspaper business you know you got to get it in on time and make sure it's in english and somebody else will straighten out the punctuation and misspellings uh so you know over 30 plus years in the newspaper every article got a little better (laughs) and and so now i'm like uh, i left the newspaper business in 09 and started concentrating on long-form journalism, you know, books. Uh, and uh, since '09, I think uh, I'm, I'm, I think uh, I'm putting out my twelfth and thirteenth book this year. So those, each one of those, has gotten a little bit better. So how badly, really, did you detest school? Though, did you just hate it to death? School was slow for me. I had other things I was interested in. There was. Um, other places that, that were more rewarding to be, I spent a lot of time in the public library, oddly enough, uh, although I also did spend time in the, in, in the pool hall up the street. Um, yeah, school. Yeah, I mean, it was the 60s, man. There were other things going on. <laughs> yes, there were plenty of other. Do you remember that, uh, that first moment that you walked into the the San Francisco Chronicle. I do. 
I do. Yeah. I was 17 years old. I'd been hired as a copy boy. And uh, it was uh, September of, of, of 1967. And I, I, I walked into the, uh, the Chronicle City room. There's this giant one room that everybody that works for newspapers at a desk. And there's these pillars down the center of the room. There are no trash cans. Everybody just crumples up stuff and throws it on the floor. And the pillars are covered with stuff that people have cut out of the paper and pasted on it. Just headline words and, and goofy pictures. And, uh, and I had spent my whole life being told I didn't fit in. And it was not something I understood, like fit into what? But when I walked into that room and, and I just took in the atmosphere and saw the people and, and, and before I walked halfway back to where my table was, I realized that I was in a room full of people who had been told the same thing. We were a collection of people who didn't fit in. And I was just instantly at home. And I have to think, based on that uh, period of time, there was a ton of interesting characters that were uh, part of that room. Yeah, we still had the old guys from the front page, you know, from before the Second World War. Charlie Rodebaugh had a little waxed mustache that he, he, he spun into a little curl, and he had uh, this tweed hat, and he would, he would come in and he would push the tweed hat back on his head, type with two fingers at about 90 words a minute. And, and uh, it, it, Charlie uh, uh, broke a murder case that the cops couldn't handle. And then, and then there was George Draper. George fought in the Spanish Civil War with the Abraham Lincoln Brigade. And he was this incredibly elegant, uh, sort of aristocratic character who rode his bicycle into work from uh, Sausalito. Uh, and George was just a, a, a remarkable character. I crossed paths with him when a, uh, a, a gal was uh, uh, murdered in a recording studio, and, and, and I volunteered that you know, I knew who she was. And, and so they sent me out to her parents' house to get a picture. <laughs> and what about this gentleman by the name of Ralph Gleason? Well, Ralph was a huge figure in the world of popular music criticism. Uh, he started writing for the Chronicle somewhere around like 1949, 1950. Uh, and he was the first regular pop music critic to write for a daily newspaper. The New York Times didn't have one for a couple of years. And, and, and Ralph was mostly a jazz critic at that point because that's where the action was. Uh, but uh, his, his coverage ranged far and wide. Uh, he, he drove out to San Pablo to uh, review Hank Williams. Uh, he caught Fast Domino at an R&B show in 1952. Uh, people like Louis Armstrong and Duke Ellington that he routinely covered were astonished to find themselves being the subject of newspaper articles and mainstream establishment white newspapers. So Gleason was this incredible pioneer and, 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 and pathfinder in, in, in the world of um, popular music criticism. His only peers were Leonard Feather now at the Los Angeles Times and, and, and Nat Hentoff at the Village Voice. Now, I grew up reading Ralph in the Chronicle. And furthermore, I went to high school with his kids. Uh, so Ralph loomed very large in my sort of like forming my impressions about how this job went and what music was about. And, and you know, back in those days, if you had an intellectual curiosity about music, there were very few places to turn. Uh, I used to spend after uh, school afternoons in record stores reading liner notes because that was a, a repository of information. There weren't books about this music, 
but there were liner notes by Gleason and Hentoff and Feather and 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 a, a lot of these guys that were part of the record business back in the fifties and sixties. So that was it. And then Ralph had three columns: uh, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and two on Sunday. So there was plenty of Ralph in the paper, and he and and he he saw his. Um, Bailiwick uh, 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 being far and wide. I mean, he, he wrote extensively about World War II history. He was virulent anti-Nazi. Uh, he wrote a lot about free speech issues, and he wrote a lot about jazz. And then when the San Francisco rock scene started to happen, he was there from the very moment. Ralph had that newspaper man's instinct for a good story. And, and so when this stuff started to take place, it got covered in the Chronicle, and and that was a a window into this n- new and exciting scene going on that you couldn't ha- get anywhere else. There was n- nothing on the radio. There were no underground newspapers. There were no m- Rolling Stones or ma- music magazines, but you could read about it in Ralph's columns, and that became a huge advantage to the scene. I mean, he grew that scene. He was a multiplying effect. Uh, and then when Ralph retired from the Chronicle in 1970 to go to work at Fantasy Records, he, he was uh, his replacement, John Wasserman, subsequently hired me to be his assistant. And, and that's where I enter the picture, right in the shadow of Ralph Gleason. And, and, and there was one point much, much later in my career where uh, I had had uh, serious beef with management. And, and I think they wanted me to quit. But, you know, I ended up slapping them down with an age discrimination beef. And I was like radioactive in the city room. Nobody wanted to tell me to do anything. You know, it was like, leave Selvin alone. And I was in a pretty bad mood about my job at the time, too. So I spent three weeks coming to the paper and going downstairs in the basement where they kept the files. And I read in order of appearance every article that Ralph read, wrote for the Chronicle. In the end, I wrote a 100-inch article about Gleason and what I read. Uh, and 100 inches in the newspaper, by the way, is like War and Peace or something. Uh, it took months to get to, for thing that the, for that thing to see print, but that was kind of a way that I reconnected with my bliss and and figured out what my roots were and looked into this whole thing. And you know that's Ralph, and and, and he looms over all of us that write about pop music in in in, in this country. Is there anything that you wish that you uh, asked him that you never had the chance to ask him? Oh, I got there. The, I, I got hooked up back with Ralph at some point at Fantasy Records. Uh, I, I was there talking to the publicity director, and Ralph wandered into the office, and and he was very antipathetical with my boss, John Wasserman. And you know, it was an Irish guy, kept grudges. Uh, so that afternoon, Ralph spent about two hours just talking to me about what he thought I should know and lots of stuff. He told me, uh, stayed with me for the rest of my time at the Chronicle. And then that night I paved a phone call in between him and Wasserman. And so that got paved over and, 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 and fixed. Uh, and from then on, I had full access to Ralph. He would call me if I wrote something that he thought was interesting or send me a letter. I remember letters. Uh, and, uh, the last time I talked to Ralph, was about a week before he died and he called to talk about the death of the radio disc jockey tom donahue who was which was a huge loss to san francisco huge uh and i remember ralph's benediction was yeah he was a good cat and that was like the blessing from ralph gleason yeah he was a good cat so uh, I, I had a lot of direction from Ralph on, and, and a lot of things that uh, he said uh, guided me. And there was, a, you know, a good period of time, like, you know, when I was starting out, where if I had a question, I could actually pick up the phone and call him and, and, and chat with him. So, yeah, no, Ralph was an authentic mentor. He had hands on with me. So with the newspaper business that's gone through, you know, all these shifts and 
downturns, obviously, to this to this day. What was the ownership like of the Chronicle back in that day? Well, the Chronicle was owned by a fa- one family. It was a little bit like working for uh, 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 you know an aristocratic group of people uh, who had sort of Republican inclinations, but ran a kind of Democrat newspaper. And there was always a sort of tension between that. And and we knew in the Sunday paper, we knew to double check the Sunday crossword puzzle because the publisher's wife read it. And if there was a typo or a mistake, that was Monday morning problem. <laughs> As time went on, the uh, younger generation of newspaper owners would connect with me to get tickets to rock concerts and ultimately join me covering shows so that like Joe Tobin and, and Nyan McAvoy, they were my pals. We would go out to shows together and they, they, and they, they and, and they were like happy to be going to the rock show with the paper's news music critic. It'd be like going to the, the, uh, the football game with the sports writer. So what do you think uh, in those rare instances where a, you know, truly local small town paper exists. How important is that to somebody like you? I don't know what uh, the future of uh, print journalism is. The Internet has obviously uh, uh, overwhelmed our culture and the effect on uh, newspapers has been deleterious to the extreme. Uh, I, I left my job at the Chronicle in 2009. Uh, Hearst corporation was losing a million dollars a week at that newspaper. 120 editorial employees left their jobs that year. There had been a substantial departure the year before, and there was a substantial departure the year after. So they just whittled it down to this really, you know, skeleton crew, many, many young people, because the old people were the ones that walked the plank and, 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 and with them went all the institutional lore, all hundreds, if not thousands of years of experience, knowledge, contacts, resources. Uh, so not only were, did they lose their audience, but they lost their professional level. I mean, I remember going to New York the year I left, uh, the paper and, and and having drinks with some guys that made their living selling magazine articles. Now they were belly aching about how 10,000 daily newspaper guys had lost their job across the country and were going to be trying to sell magazine articles. Of course, magazines all are, are, are empty now too. I mean, that market dried up and, and went away. I, I don't have a, a, an incredible vision for that, but your, your question about local news sources so speaks to the real vulnerability of like who's covering the city councils in this country now and what are they getting away with without newspaper guys that know what's going on watching what they do uh i i don't know uh you you know nextdoor.com doesn't make it so you were you were on the scene when the legendary fomore west first began how did Bill Graham pull off building that uh, special place? Bill Graham was an interesting guy, uh, a, a really powerful personality, and uh, the compulsive, obsessive narcissism that you know powers that kind of world-beating, empire-building a- attitude. He didn't really understand what he stumbled onto, so it's even more miraculous than it might seem. You know, it just sort of happened to Bill. He was an actor who had failed in his acting career and moved to San Francisco and and was working as an office manager for Alice Chalmers, who rented out office furniture. To keep his hand in the theatrical world, he became the business manager for a local left-wing theater group called the San Francisco Meme Troupe. And they were arrested on obscenity charges for producing a 16th century Italian play in a public park. And in order to raise money for their defense fund, some of the people in the theater group 
put together a benefit featuring some of these new rock bands that were around town. And the thing was so successful, it was beyond anybody's imagination. So Bill had a second benefit, and that was real successful. That one, he rented an auditorium in a black neighborhood called the Fillmore Auditorium, $60 a night. And he did a third benefit, and then a month later, he started throwing concerts there on his own. Now, Bill didn't know one band from another, and he knew nothing about music outside of Latin music, which had been an enthusiasm of his growing up in New York in the 50s. But he had this street-smart sense of who knew what and who he could lean on for this and that. His first partner was a guy named Chet Helms. And he used to tell this story about how he got up early and called New York while Chet was still asleep. And that's the end of that partnership. He booked the Paul Butterfield Blues Band. The Butterfield Blues Band showed up in town. They were huge in San Francisco in 66. They were everything all the other bands wanted to be. And Mike Bloomfield was this enormous figure of, of repute and, and, and recognition. And, and Bloomfield was the one who started telling Bill, you got to bring in the guys from Chicago like Muddy Waters and Junior Wells and, 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 and the blues guys. Uh, and B.B. King. Uh, and then as the Fillmore went on, and, and uh, he hired a guy named Paul Barada, and Paul knew all about the English rock scene, so Traffic and Cream and Pink Floyd and Procol Harum got booked into the Fillmore. And, and the thing was just phenomenally successful. Oh, what a wonderful scene it was, too, Buzz. I swear to God. Uh, three bucks. You walk up these stairs, uh, there's some goofball at the top of their stairs telling you, welcome to the Fillmore. There's a barrel of apples, free, take one if you want an apple. Uh, and inside, there's this room filled with lights and sounds. They weren't spotlights. They were colored projections that were from the balcony that were operated by maybe 10, 12 people so they could, like, flap plastic and, and make the lights bounce in time to the music. And to Chet Helms, who started the competition of the Fillmore at the Avalon Ballroom and was much more of a philosopher king than Bill, to Chet Helms, it was really important that this was not an Apollonian theatrical presentation. By Apollonian, he meant a proscenium stage with the gateway to the gods where the audience sits and stares through the proscenium at these magnificent creatures that are acting out. To Chet, what was much more important was that there was no proscenium, there was no spotlights, there was no real distinction between what was going on on stage and what was going on in the room. The audience and the performers were all of one piece. And to Chet, that represented a Dionysian revel, not Apollonian. And so he's looking at these kind of archetypes. And, and I, I tell you, every one of us that walked into those rooms in 1966 felt the specialness of it as soon as we got there. And it bonded us as audience members because we were all in this special secret world together, and we all knew how wonderful it was. So just immediately, the whole thing created community just to walk in there. And then the bands were all just breaking down barriers and trying out things, and new stuff was going on. And if it wasn't San Francisco bands like the Grateful Dead and Quicksilver Messenger Service, it was groups from Los Angeles like Buffalo, Springfield, and The Doors, or uh, bands from England that were coming through. Uh, when, when, when traffic showed up in town for their first U.S. gig, Owsley met him at the airport and filled him full of LSD, took him back to the Grateful Dead house, and at midnight they were jamming on a flatbed truck outside the KMPX studios when the radio station staff went on strike that night. Uh, I, I mean, it, uh, the, San Francisco was on the edge of the Western world, and it was happening. This stuff was on fire. What was your relationship like with uh, Bill Graham? Ah! <laughs> 
Uh, so Bill was under the impression that I worked for him but wasn't on his payroll. And uh, it took about 10 years before I could teach him that I didn't write the headlines because he would read the headline and he would pick up the phone and start screaming at me. He didn't even read the story. But that went on. It depended on what he wanted. Did he need some help on something? If he needed some help on something, he was on the phone like we were old friends. If I hadn't given him proper glory in the newspaper, then he was pissed at me and he would be incredibly rude and and, and uh, um, just, you know, awful. It would like, you know, avert his eyes and just terrible. So I saw right away that this guy was really all about self-service and what could I do for him? My, my, my first wife said, oh, I get Bill Graham. What's mine is mine and what's yours is negotiable. And, and that's pretty much the way Bill operated. Uh, I got stories for days about how, you know, we came into conflict over stuff. But, it, you know, uh, it, it just went away as soon as he wanted something else. And in, in his autobiography, he talks about how he put the last waltz tickets on sale for 25 bucks and he couldn't announce any of the special guests, but his audience trusted him so much. They just bought the tickets anyway. So that's not really how I remember it. What I remember is that the band had already had a concert booked for the Berkeley community theater on sale and it was stinking up the place. They weren't going to sell a third of the tickets to this 3,000-seat hall. And that's when they decided, well, you know what we're going to do is we're going to retire and we're going to do this big deal. And they put, Bill did put the, the last wall tickets on sale, 25 bucks, farewell to the band. That's all it said. And they didn't, they didn't budge. They didn't, nobody bought $25 tickets to the band at Winterland. So he calls me up and says, he can't tell anybody this, but Bob Dylan, uh, Eric Clapton, you know, blah, 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 blah. And it goes in my column and the tickets sell out in an hour. That part gets forgotten in Bill's retelling of it. You know, his retelling is that his, his folks trusted him so much they went and bought those $25 tickets. Not bloody likely. That goes on and on and on. And, and, and all, I mean, when he died, we weren't speaking. And that, that was over some ZZ Top concert that, you know, he blocked from being in the baseball stadium in Oakland. And, you know, Bill, I, <laughs> he was a really difficult person unless you did what he wanted. <laughs> so it's April of 1967, a magical time for sure. What were you and your friends and co-conspirators, what were you talking about then? <laughs> so this funny you mentioned April. In January of 1967, the human being happened in Golden Gate Park. 60, 80, 100,000 people showed up and just were hippies for a day. And it was a sign that this thing was on, whatever it was. And the idea that the young world was going to come to San Francisco as soon as school was out that year started to develop. That became a part of the discussion. But here we were living right under the auspice of this whole thing. And we'd all been taking LSD. So we were part of what was going on. And it was a topic of discussion. Oh, we get together, and what's going on was being analyzed, commented on, observed. It was it was just happening. And I'm in an apartment in Oakland. I remember seeing there's like five or six guys. We're sitting around, uh, and we're talking about what's going on. And somebody says, I hear there's 100,000 people coming to San Francisco this summer. Another guy says, now, if we can just figure out how to get a dollar from each one of them. 
bells went off in my head. Buzz was like, wait, 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 wait. No, wait, no, wait. <laughs> no, no, that's all wrong. That's not what we're about here. We're evolved consciousness. You know, we're trying to change the world, not get a dollar out of everybody. It struck such a, a, a nerve with me. I realized that everything that I had thought was possible was not possible. That all these dreams of, of, of um, utopian bliss were just foolishness on my part. And so I dropped out of high school and left the Bay Area for the summer. <laughs> I went and lived in a small town in uh, Indiana and, and just hid from what they called the summer of love. And I came back in September having arranged a job as a copy boy at the Chronicle. And once I got to the Chronicle and discovered that I could get on the guest list at the Fillmore, everything was cool. I was, you know, I was set. But you also, in 1968, the L.A. Uh, publicity scene became your friend as well in terms of interviews, which was kind of your next uh, progression um, talk about some of that access that that gave you for your trips to L.A. to uh, meet some of these folks and interview them. So I ended up getting into uh, college at, at, at Riverside, which was about an hour east of Los Angeles, UC Riverside, and uh, going right for this school newspaper. And this would be 1968. And at that point, there was so little media paying attention to this music scene that was just blowing up. There were a few underground newspapers like the LA free press or the Berkeley bar. Uh, Rolling Stone started in what November of 67, but it was really pretty small time for still a couple years. And um, I found that record company publicity offices were very welcoming to somebody writing for a college newspaper. And as I was an hour outside of Los Angeles, it was super easy to just scoot in there and catch shows at the Whiskey or conduct interviews. And the accessibility was unbelievable. I, I, I remember doing an article on Little Richard, and, I, and I, um, he was doing a, a run at the Whiskey. And he just had me and our photographer with him at all times. We sat in his dressing room when Mick Jagger came in and says, oh, the king of rock and roll. We were at his hotel room after the gigs up until three and four in the morning talking to him. We were um, meeting him the next day when he doing TV shows. And I, I mean, I spent like four or five days with little Richard. I mean, what better thing to do than that for your college education? Uh, I had interviews for my college newspaper with Alvin Lee from 10 years after, with Sly Stone. It, really, I could, I could contact anybody and, 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 and get their time. The, the, and and the, the guys in, in the publicity departments, you know, they were pretty remarkable in those days. There were some, some fantastic people like Graylin Landon at RCA Victor. He, he was the guy that spotted Elvis Presley in Tupelo, Mississippi and signed him to a publishing deal. And uh, had, had a job with RCA for the rest of his life, pretty much because of it. Well, at that point on the trip, too, yeah, like you mentioned Sly Stone, who you would later write about. What was the experience that prompted your further interest in that gentleman? Well, Sly has always been of interest. Uh, the the uh, in, in what, 1993, 94, I, I was commissioned to um, uh, conduct an oral history of Sly and the Family Stone for a series of books that were going to be oral histories sweeping out the dusty corners of rock history. Uh, Black Sabbath, Leonard Skinner, uh, Sam and Dave, the women of Motown, and Sly and the Family Stone. So at that point, I'd been almost entirely forgotten. Uh, and, and I had the opportunity to go around and talk to these people that were associated with that story 
at a point where they really felt ignored and 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 nobody had really come and and, and pumped them dry. So I, I, everybody participated and everybody was incredibly candid and open. And then there was Hamp Banks and Hamp was Sly's brother-in-law. He was a pimp and kind of a gangster. No, not he was a gangster. What am I talking about? Kind of. Uh, and and nobody had ever asked him about Sly. And I found him, and he was super enthusiastic. He not only wanted to tell me everything he knew, but he wanted to introduce me to all the other gangsters so they could tell me what they knew. And I ended up with this extraordinary account of of uh, of this watershed event in in pop music history, the the Sly and the Family Stone parabola up and down. Uh, It's almost Dostoevskyan at points. It's so uh, grim and and, and dark. But there you have it. And and, and that that was kind of a a, a breakthrough work in the field because the story had just never really been told. Uh, it, it, It had stopped at the edge of the band and nobody had gone in and, and researched it and, and gotten the backstory with Black and, 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 and James Brown. And, and I mean, they beat up the road crew one night, uh, kidnapped uh, the road manager's girlfriend, and then went after the bass player. And he, and, and he left the band in the backseat of a car under a blanket and never went back. Wow. Well, how did you become this writer that, wanted to touch these stories and dig into them that a lot of people probably ran away from. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, um, yeah, I, I like the noir stories. I like the, I like the dark stories. I like the uh, conflict and, and the uh, adversity, uh, 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 the irony that gets developed about that. And, and it's real. The, the happy endings are, 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 are uh, fiction. We don't have happy endings. And so, yeah, I'm drawn towards the the Burt Burns story with the, the damaged heart and the gangsters at the end uh, or the Rolling Stones and Altamont with the Hell's Angels and, and all that uh, or the the Hollywood Eden book, which really gets into the, the underbelly, the dark underbelly of the... Los Angeles sunny pop of the 60s, the Beach Boys and Jan and Dean and Nancy Sinatra and all that. Yeah, those are the things that I like to read. Uh, Those are the stories that I feel have the kind of sharp, dramatic contours that I like to work with as a writer. Which brings us to the recent passing of Jim Gordon and something I know you've been working on. Yeah, last two and a half years, I've been working on a biography of Jim Gordon. It's something that's been with me for a long, long time. And I, I finally was able to, uh, you, you know, clear a place and, 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 and dive in. It's been a very difficult project. And it, 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 it was started when an editor at a publishing house suggested that I do something that mixed rock and roll with crime. I mean, what's more famous than... Jim Gordon killing his mother. But after you look into it, and then and that's how it plays. It's just awful. It's just, you know, this guy killed his mother. That's all you know about it. I mean, when you look into it, there's a couple of things going on. First of all, the level of Jim Gordon's abilities was just beyond any human parameters. I mean, he he was a supernatural drummer. And all the other drummers recognized that. Those of us that just listen to music... It might be a little lost on you, but it's a level of intuition that's just so beyond the technique and training and all that. So you have this brilliant guy who has created whole vocabularies for rock and roll drum and playing on the greatest records of his lifetime. He's playing on Wichita Lineman by Glenn Campbell. He starts out with the Everly Brothers. He's on Nancy Sinatra records, Sonny and Cher records, Phil Spector records. He's on Good Vibrations. He's on, uh, you know, just on and on. And then, of course, he has his whole English period. Well, Joe Cocker's Mad Dogs and Englishman, uh, Delaney and Bonnie and Friends, and then Derek and the Dominoes, which 
one of the greatest records and one of the pinnacles of rock history. And then the mental illness takes over. And that's the thing that's so interesting to me is, is the music industry is so tolerant of drug addicts and alcoholics and sex deviants. No problem. But somebody who's mentally ill can't handle it, can't deal with it. The gym battled to maintain his beautiful life. He fought those voices and that illness as hard as he could. Unfortunately, he was severely ill. It wasn't really curable. But we're talking about someone who entered 15 mental hospitals. Well, not 15 different ones, but he went into mental hospitals 15 times to try and help himself. And, 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 and I don't see where too many people reached out a hand and said, poor Jim, can I help you? Jackson Brown did. Burton Cummings did. But not really. Everybody else just sort of like, is Jim Keltner available for the state? You know, Jim didn't get any help, but he was schizophrenic. And, and there's a whole bunch of things that go along with being schizophrenic. And we have to understand about schizophrenia, too. Schizophrenia is so common. Buzz, it's one in 100 in the general population. By comparison, multiple sclerosis is one in 10,000. So, you know, all those people you see out on the streets that are got nowhere to go and, 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 and got their backpacks and stuff... That's a lot of those people are schizophrenics. And they don't necessarily have it as severely as Jim did. His symptoms were incredibly severe, and they built and built and built, and they culminated in this horrible, grotesque act where he brutally killed his mother. He went to jail the next morning and never set foot outside of jail again. He spent half his life in jail, 39 years. He was 38 when he went in. Already, people's attitudes in public have changed tremendously about Jim, right with his death. And it's, it's, it's fascinating to me because I've been pushing this stone up the hill, and there's been a lot of people who don't want to talk to me, don't want to deal with it, don't want to have anything to do with it. Uh, and then suddenly, he's not a murderer anymore. He's somebody who suffered from mental illness. That was the take of the obituaries. And they've never played that way before. It always been he was this murderer who killed his mother. Now he's a mentally ill guy who played on some of the greatest records of his lifetime. It's an incredible, wrenching, sad story. And, and the details, uh, uh, as, as it comes out in the book, uh, they, they just make you hurt to read them. So it'll be out next month, uh, next year, February, Drums and Demons, uh, The Tragic Journey of Jim Gordon. And I, I, I'm, I'm most anxious to see how people respond to it. Maybe it'll change things and open people's eyes at a time, you know, around mental illness uh, that would be needed, you know. Our society turns a blind eye on mental illness uh, especially uh, something as untreatable as Jim's uh, condition. And uh, we, we just, as a society, we don't know what to do with these people. And so we throw up our hands and, and, and e either warehouse them or the, the basic treatment is, is, is to just dial them in on drugs until they can stay off the sidewalks and then push them back out again. It, it, it's unkind. It is not... A, 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 a real solution uh, and it doesn't take into account the vast prevalence of this condition amongst us. You brought up uh, Burt Burns, uh, your book Here Comes the Night. Uh, tell us what's going on with that. I know there's uh, big plans for Broadway and, and beyond. You know, there's a there's a musical that actually was uh, off-Broadway in 2014 and, and uh, it's in the, in the works to uh, return to Broadway on the on the big uh, uh, stage. Uh, Rob Reiner has completed a script uh, based on this um, 
book and uh, plans to shoot it, uh, I guess, next year. He wants to do the Spinal Tap reunion movie first, and, and I, I, I want to see that one. <laughs> but so, yeah, there's a lot going on. I mean, that, that, that book, I can't tell you, I worked for years and years and years on that book. And if I had a nickel for every time somebody said, who's Burt Burns? It it would have outdistanced my royalties. But the fact is that the book came out, people stopped asking who Burt Burns was. And the next year, there's a documentary out about him. And the next year, he's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And the next year, he's up for the Songwriters Hall of Fame. So, yeah, we went from who's Burt Burns to bringing this guy as close to back to life as can be done. And and, um, that, that, that book. Yeah, I'm real proud of that book. Uh, 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 the music is fantastic. The story is amazing. And uh, I, I was able to get in there, you know, Ellie Greenwich and, and uh, Morris Levy and all those people that were uh, such a big part of the book. They're not, they're not with us anymore. What role in the, the real day did uh, radio stations play on uh not only the culture, but, you know, the activity around breaking artists. Oh, man, Buzz, we remember when radio was uh, one of our culture's leading mediums. And uh, the it, 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 by the time we're involved in it, uh, it has gravitated towards being the uh, the, the purveyor, the, the, the conveyor of popular music, whether it's, you know, the MOR stations, uh, the easy listening or the top 40 stations or the, the, the rock and roll stations evolved into, they, they carried that culture. And, and, you know, I think back on it and, and, and it's like a miracle that James Brown and Herman's Hermits were on the same radio station. There was no race barrier. It was, it was a good record. It was on that station. Anybody with a good record could get on that station. Good record in five bucks, I guess. But uh, radio in the late 50s and early 60s was the clarion call for this whole culture, for all this, this, this musical culture. And then as it opened up into the FM band, uh, that opened up the music in, in ways that it hadn't been before and created yet more areas for these cultural activities to take place. Radio was so important. And I, I, I guess, you know, like the record industry itself, it, it, it fell prey to its own marketing methods, you know, kind of a research this way right out of uh, relevance. I, I mean, uh, you know better than I do, but I, 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 my recollection is that the top 40 uh, stations of the, of the late 70s had a playlist of about 16 records. And they were banging like 16 records. Uh, you'd, you'd hear the entire playlist in two and a half hours. Only hits, only very narrow cast hits. Uh, it, it didn't allow for the culture to grow. It didn't allow for the music to grow. And it certainly, you know, put a stranglehold on the AM radio programming. When the FM radio programming took over, again, that was great for a while. It promoted all this creativity, and, and, and there was all these open playlists. I mean, they called it freeform radio, underground radio. Uh, but, you know, it wasn't long before the great experts of media broadcasting started applying the marketing methods. And, and did you have stations with pies? So you have to play one of Absolutely. these. One of these, and, and as the, the only one blue dot record per hour, and, you know, I don't, I don't know. I remember when the river came out. Now, if ever, if ever there was a record that hit the rock culture on its day of release, the river was one. I mean, double record set, every song a killer. The guy was the most anticipated new release of the moment. And I remember the FM radio station in San Francisco, the program director telling me proudly that she was five cuts deep. <laughs> and that was radical being five cuts deep on a record it was radical no question i was uh 16 cuts deep <laughs> 
Well, Joe, in closing, so I have a little exercise for you. We're going to be holding a, uh, a make-believe cocktail party at your house uh, tomorrow night. You get to invite five uh, deceased guests uh, that you'd like to have conversation with at the cocktail party. Who would you invite? Well, this is like that New York Times uh, book section interview. They always want the dinner party for the uh, uh, dead authors. And, you know, uh, uh, actually, I would invite all uh, friends of mine that died. So but that's not, you know, we're, we're not going to uh, hey, a, a chance to see Brian Rohan again in a minute. But who are, who, uh, who are the, the, the musicians that I would like to gather together and maybe like, you know, hand out a few guitars and stuff. Right. You know, how about yep. Jerry Garcia? Willie Nelson, Bob Marley, uh, Alan Toussaint, got to have a keyboard player, and, uh, you know, maybe Steve Miller because he's my pal and it's always fun to hang out with Steve. Wow. That'd be a good jam session. That would be a great party. I'll be right over. <laughs> and bring and bring a couple joints. <laughs> I'm, I'm there. And we'll bring our... We'll bring our pals, Dave Logan and Bill Pugh as well. Yeah, man. Well, Buzz, this is great. I really uh, 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 hope it's been as much fun for you as it's been for me. It's good to be with you, Buzz. I'm glad to make your acquaintance. Thanks, Joel. Thanks to Joel Selvin for the amazing, candid storytelling. If you like this podcast, kindly share it with a friend. All episodes of Taking a Walk, produced by Bob Malatesta. Thanks for listening. I'm Buzz Knight. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Every family has an origin story, one passed down through the generations. Mine happens to be a mystery involving my great-great-grandmother left behind in Sicily. I'm Joe Piazza, and my new podcast will transport you to the gorgeous island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a whodunit for the ages. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.